Brethren, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me this evening to 2 Chronicles and chapter 33. We're going to be looking at the first half of this chapter, making our way to verse 13. Before we read the Word of God, let us ask the Lord's help once more. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Your Word is sweet as honey to the believer. Your Word is the very source of joy for us, rejoicing our hearts. Your Word makes wise the simple. Your Word brings instruction. Your Word warns us. Your Word shapes us. And Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would attend to the Word read and preached and You would do work in our own hearts that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Second Chronicles 33, hear now God's Word. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In the carved image of the idol that he had made, he sat in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appoint for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Well, this is God's holy word, and may he bless it to our hearts tonight. We have all heard the old adage, like father, like son, or the phrase, the apple did not fall far from the tree. Now these two sayings, of course, hold grains of truth. The second one in particular may actually take us all the way back 
to the garden in Genesis 3, indicating that we are like our first father. Indeed, when these expressions are used, they are almost always used in a pejorative way. Yeah, you're like your father. However, in the case of Manasseh, when he assumed the throne after his father's death, it would have been a tremendous compliment to say such a thing about him. Hezekiah was one of the godliest kings in the history of the Davidic line. He wasn't flawless, as we saw last week, but even when significant warts were witnessed, this man, by grace, still came to his senses, humbled himself, and sought the Lord. Well, that is not what we see here with Manasseh. Manasseh will take the throne as a young man, 12 years of age, and he will reign longer than any king in either Israel or Judah. Yet, in his many days, he multiplies sin and he makes the nations odious to God. It's a reminder here, as Matthew Henry puts it, parents may give many good things to their children, but they cannot give them grace. Manasseh is not like his father. He pursues sin. And he takes Judah which apart from Hezekiah's uh, change, his reform that he brought, was already headed toward a bad spot. But Manasseh now takes Judah to the point of no return. And yet even in this dark scene, there's hope in all the mess. Though this man is going to show himself to be the worst and wickedest king in the history of the Davidic line, there's going to be an awakening in his soul by the mercy of God. Manasseh is something of the Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul in the Old Testament. And he reveals to us that no sinner is beyond the rescuing power of the grace of God. Well, let's begin to explore this history of rebellion and rescue. And I want you to see three things. The first is a catalog of sin. A catalog of sin in verses 1-9. to Now, in 2 Chronicles 29 and 30, our author reported to us elaborately the reforms of Hezekiah. How Hezekiah removed the altar that his father Ahaz had set up, which defiled the temple. How he removed the idols littering Jerusalem, the holy city, and he removed the idols in all of Judah. Hezekiah established the regular temple ministry, morning and evening sacrifice, a teaching priesthood, Levites, working on rotation, and the practice of the feasts. But the moment Hezekiah closes his eyes in death, Manasseh starts an overhaul in an evil direction. And that overhaul builds in crescendo-like fashion in this section, adding one sin to another sin to another sin. Note how the text begins with this rough assessment in verse 2. And he, Manasseh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now you remember repeatedly in the law of Moses, the Lord warned His people not to imitate the practices of these pagan nations. And He plainly told His people that those corruptions aroused God's anger and led to their judgment. And they will be a snare to you if you practice those abominable things. But Manasseh has no ears to hear the word of God's law warning him against it all. And then the author begins to articulate 
the very specific ways in which Manasseh lived by the scandalous sins of the corrupt Canaanites. Look at the connective in verse 3. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. Now you remember in your reading of the Bible, virtually no king ever sought to extensively exterminate all the high places in the land. But Hezekiah tried. These things were so ingrained among the people in the cultural practice that when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, when he sent his envoys to intimidate Hezekiah, he actually brings this up. His lackeys ask the question, has not Hezekiah taken away God's high places? Now, it's not that Sennacherib knows anything about the law of Moses or even cares about religious reform, but he's cleverly and satanically trying to stir up discontent. Hezekiah's removal of these high places would not have been popular with the we've always done it this way traditionalists. You don't know any of those people in your life, do you? We've always done it this way. And they don't want to examine what does the Word actually say. Well, Manasseh is one of those kinds of people. He's not interested in what the Word says. He wants to just follow the spirit of the age. And he totally rejects the godliness of his father and he goes back to the old paths, not the old paths of the patriarchs, but the old paths of those in the days of the judges when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Now these high places, these were the traditional sites away from the temple where Yahweh's name would be honored but it wasn't enough for him to have those high places. See how verse 3 continues. And he erected altars to the Baals, and made Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. This catalog of sin now begins unfolding first the idolatrous sexual free for all that was fertility worship the worship of Baal and his consort wife, Asherah. Indeed, the way you worshipped Baal was by committing sexually immoral acts with the temple prostitute to encourage Baal to bring prosperity. You engage in your act of fertility so that he'll engage in his act of fertility. It's an act of manipulation. But Manasseh didn't want to put all his eggs in one basket by giving himself to the Canaanite fertility pantheon where you're trying to manipulate the gods to induce them to make you prosperous. So he also devotes himself to the stars, bowing down to these heavenly bodies as though they are divine. In astral worship, like modern day horoscope readings, there's a belief that the various powers in the heavens can indicate future events. So if you want to control your future, if you want to avoid things that might damage your prosperity, you seek a knowledge and the guidance of the stars so that you will know how to react to what's coming. Now you should see a trend here with Baal and Asherah fertility worship and astral worship because it's really all about one thing. It's about control. You see, in a sense, you are acknowledging in this pagan worship powers greater than you. But what you're really doing is trying to harness, manipulate, 
understand and in a sense direct those powers for your own benefit. You're managing your life. You're trying to be the master of your destiny as though you can find a cheat code in the world to be fat and happy in your existence. Even the worship of Yahweh at the high places has this kind of control bent towards it. You give Yahweh your worship, but as Sinatra is saying, you're committed to say, I did it my way. Forget the fact that God tells you who to worship, how to worship, and when to worship. No, you act as though you are dictating religious things and that God owes you something when you deign to give Him attention. Oh, I don't need to go to the temple. God should just be happy that I'm thinking about Him at all. This is the manipulative nature of pagan worship. And the practices of the Canaanites, which are abominable, are man-centered in totality. There is no belief here in an all-prevailing, transcendent, immutable, or unchangeable God who governs the world and your life. In fact, you won't even submit to such an idea. You will rule yourself while making a show of being spiritual, a religious person. Paganism is about doing it your way and refusing to acknowledge the Word of the Sovereign God as though you can secure yourself. And it just keeps getting worse with Manasseh. Verse 4, And he built altars in the house of the Lord. This is particularly abominable because it takes the very sacred space devoted to Yahweh where the Lord in covenant dwelt with His people and it devotes that space to other gods. It's as though the Lord is totally written off. It forgets the promise that He made to dwell with His people forever. Manasseh is ignoring the grace of God and he's taking all the parts of the temple and devoting them to paganism, verse 5. But then he descends even farther. Verse 6, and, and you should really pay attention to that word that keeps mounting, and, do you hear the growing catalog of sin? And this, and this, and this. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune telling, and omens, and sorcery, and dealt with mediums, and with necromancers. Here the catalog of sin echoes everything Yahweh said not to do, in Deuteronomy 18. For whoever does these things, the Lord said there, is an abomination to the Lord. In other words, it's not just that the sins were abominable. He hates the sinner that does them. Now I know that cuts across the grain of a modern saying, the Lord loves the sinner and hates the sin. That's not really biblical. The Lord brings anger against the one who does the abominable thing. Child sacrifice. Talking to the dead. Hearing the guidance of those who consult demons. These things are exceedingly devilish and provoke the anger of God. They mock the gift of life by slaughtering children. They mock the truth of the afterlife as though the dead exist in some shadow-like land and they don't go to heaven or hell. And they mock God's good rule by looking to the demonic for direction. But again, brethren, this is all about control. By burning your children in the fire, the pagan thought was, you show the false god how earnest you are to purchase his favor 
so that He will do what you want Him to do. By seeking mediums and necromancers, those who do things like read spots on the livers of dead animals and drip blood on bones to see certain shapes or have meetings to speak to the dead, which is really a conversation with demons, you're trying to get a leg up on things that might happen so that you can secure yourself. But dear friends, isn't this the great thing about our covenant God? That He doesn't demand the blood of our children. On the contrary, He gives the blood of His Son for our salvation. Further, our covenant God doesn't leave us in the dark. We don't have to cut out livers of animals and search for spots, or we don't have to study the stars and figure out what we're supposed to do. No, the Lord gives us a word. He's a speaking God. He declares His will plainly there. Are we paying attention to what He actually says? Sure, there are things we don't know. Sure, His providence can perplex us. But the truth of God remains and we're spiritually safe when we do what He says. He demonstrates His goodness over and over and over again in bringing deliverance to His people. And He's just done it by saving them from the hand of Assyria. But Manasseh despises all that goodness. We would also despise that goodness if we aligned ourselves with the corrupt practices of the wicked world with its Ouija boards and tarot cards and palm readers and seance conductors. We would despise Him if we took His good gift of sex and used it for our own lusts and then slaughtered the children out of convenience so that we would be the master of our own lives. You can't make yourself secure by going your way. And the Chronicler is cataloging all of this to challenge his readers and to challenge us with a simple question. Who is the sovereign Lord of your life? Are you submissive to the only God or are you seeking to be God unto yourself? Do you see there is no security for you if you abound in sin? And look at the escalation of sin that continues. The opening descriptor said Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. But now in verse 6, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord. And what was the result of that much evil? What did it produce? Well, it provoked Yahweh to anger. The escalation of sin continues in verses 7-9 to as the text spells out the blasphemy of Manasseh in carving an image, in setting it in the house of God, the very God who owned this temple and gave His name to it. And you got to see the sarcastic critique of idolatry here with the language that Manasseh made a carved image and then he set it in the temple. What a ridiculous God this is that you have to make Him and then you have to move Him and stick Him somewhere. Such a God is puny, powerless, and pathetic. And it's supposed to be funny. Only it's really not. Because you're so deceived that you're ensnared to this stupidity. Why would anyone worship a thing that you have to make and move around as though it's God? Well, this... Massive twistedness of man's heart, brethren, is not just a problem with Manasseh. Romans chapter 1, it's a problem with all of mankind. We all exchange the glory of the true God for the lie 
and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, Paul puts it. Or in Calvin's language, commenting on that, our hearts are perpetual factories of idols where we're giving our devotion to created things rather than to God. And dear friends, I want you to see that we all still have this problem. Our focus, our captivations, our lives are often centered around our toys, our treasures, our money, our pleasures, our hobbies, even our families, to the neglect of utter loyalty to God. We've got too many things to do to read our Bible today. I don't need to pay attention to God's Word. There's the tyranny of the urgent screaming at me. Or we give God a nod on Sunday as though we worship Him and then we live every other day like His Word doesn't direct our speech and doesn't direct our thoughts and doesn't direct what we do. Let us beware. Yes, it's true. We're probably not carrying around a little statue in our pocket and ready to burn incense to it, though some still do this in the modern world. But we may well give our devotion to the things that are not God and act like the true God isn't worthy of our thoughts, our service, the best of ourselves at all times. Well, this catalog of sin closes with an ominous note in verse 9. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil. We began with evil, verse 2. We moved to much evil, verse 6. And now it's more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. If Yahweh destroyed the previous pagans for their evil, what do you think He's going to do for those who are doing more evil than those pagans? Or let me frame it as Paul does to the Corinthians because Paul takes Jewish history and he applies it to the Gentiles in 1 Corinthians 10. And here's what he says. We must not indulge sexual immorality as some of them did at Baal of Peor, and 23,000 of them fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened as an example. They happened as an, to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. All of this stuff about Manasseh is written down, not so you can say, man, that guy was really wicked. It's written down so that you and I would see, I better never go that way. I need to stop any pursuit of sin, lest it lead to my destruction. May this catalog of sin be a warning to us of the folly of the pursuit of sin. Well, second, we see with me. A call ignored. A call ignored. Verse 10. Now, I've mentioned a couple of times already the various warnings that God gave in His law not to practice the abominations of the pagans, not to be ensnared by their idolatry, which is demonic. But here, the Lord in kindness doesn't just warn Manasseh and those in his day with past words. He gives them present counsel as this evil is multiplying. Look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. Now, I don't know if this sentence arrests us the way it should. 
Because you see, one of the judgments that the Lord will bring against people pursuing wickedness is silence. Amos, the prophet, speaks of this in the latter days of the kingdom of Israel and their national life with all of their blatant sin and their Baal worship. And he talks of a day that will come when the Lord will not give His people a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. God in judgment will take His Word away. He will stop sending them prophets. He will leave them in the darkness to wander to and fro, trying to find a word from the Lord, but they will not find it. It will be like King Saul who won't repent and God won't speak to him. And what does he do? He goes to a witch. One can be so corrupt, so ensnared in sin, that no word comes. But that is not what we see here. And it should strike you in view of the mercy of the Lord. This man, Manasseh, is in the midst of multiple blasphemies. And it's not like he did it for a year. He did this for year upon year upon year, decade upon decade. He's treating the covenant God as if God is nothing. As if God is blind to sin and powerless to help. He's scoffing at the Word. But to him, Yahweh still speaks. Now we must recognize it wouldn't have been a pleasant word that the Lord brings. The Word from God through the prophets would have brought covenant accusations, warnings to flee sin, covenant curses will fall if you don't repent. Yet, as Isaiah the prophet, who prophesied during this time, put it, the Lord waits to be gracious. The Lord is calling the king and the people to turn, and He's ready to forgive them. He's ready to heal them. He's ready to take away the covenant curses if they only repent. He did this even for pagan Nineveh. He's a God who is compassionate who's slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and truth. He will turn from His sharp anger if we will repent. But what happens here? Well, verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to His people, but they paid no attention. They were not scared into submission by their neighbor to the north, Israel's fall. They weren't looking back to the destruction of their fathers in the wilderness who didn't do what God said. They have countless examples of God patiently bearing with people in their sin and pleading with people to turn, but then ultimately bringing wrath for stubborn rebellion. But they continued in the rebellion anyway. They simply refused to listen to God's prophets. And the language of the Hebrew here is they did not incline their ears. That's a really... I think a beautiful way to put it. They didn't perk up their ears to pay attention. We might compare it today to folks who are repeatedly warned of an upcoming disaster, but they make no move. Now, I remember living in mid-Mississippi, all the warnings and all the information put out about this fast-approaching storm in 2005 named Hurricane Katrina. Mandatory evacuations were issued. They were likely issued too late, particularly in the city of New Orleans, but they were still issued. And yet many assumed, hey, we can just ride out the storm. People often assume that. And to be honest, we've all come to take warnings like this with a bit of cynicism because the meteorological community makes every storm sound like it's going to be apocalyptic. But I remember, and I'm sure some of you remember, looking at the radar 
when Katrina was in the Gulf. And that thing occupied almost the entirety of the Gulf of Mexico. The storm was massive, 400 miles wide. That's almost twice as big as any other storm. It was strong. It was unprecedented. But people didn't listen. And what happened? Well, we can never be sure about how many people died as a result of that storm, but rough estimates are about 2,000 people. And here's the really sad part. Many of those deaths were totally preventable. You just needed to listen and leave. But like Manasseh and his people, they paid no attention. Are we paying attention to the God who speaks Brethren, it's true we don't live in the, the age of prophets like the Old Testament. We live in the day when God has spoken in His Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. When that prophet that Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me, when He's here, and we've been told by the Father, again on the man of transfiguration that I mentioned this morning, the Father says concerning His Son, listen to him. Listen to his threats. Listen to his promises. Listen to the sweet grace offered in the gospel. Listen to what happens if you don't repent. Are we listening to his word? Are we heeding warnings about sin? That if we fail to cling to Jesus and to heed his voice, we will die in our sin. Are we hearing Jesus say it's possible to cry out, Lord, Lord, to say that we serve the Lord and we live for the Lord while in fact we walk in wickedness and to such a person He will say, depart from Me, I never knew you. Now I'm sure if you're here on a Sunday night service at church, you would say, the Word of God matters to me. Well, beloved, are we persisting in paying close attention to Jesus' voice? Not just having the Word reverberate in your eardrum, but you're actually eager to do it. There will be no security for our souls if we fail to tremble at God's Word. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, to whom does God look? He looks to Him who, who is humble, who is contrite of spirit, and who trembles at His Word. But then finally, see with me, contrition and compassion. The king and the people didn't listen. So we're told, verse 11, Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. It's hard to be sure exactly when this takes place, but it's most likely late in Manasseh's reign. Uh, we know from external, extra-biblical, we might say, sources that Manasseh was involved in some type of rebellion against Ashur Benapal, the king of Assyria. And that rebellion is crushed about 648 B.C., which fits the timeline. Well, think of the humiliation evidenced here. What did the text say happened to this man? He's captured with hooks. He's chained. He's led away. Now, some say this whole capture with hooks thing is clearly metaphorical. But actually, brethren, that doesn't fit the historical evidence. It was a known Assyrian practice, a custom to take their captives, to put rings in their nose or rings in their cheek, hooks, 
and attach a rope to it to attach them to a long rope that's going to lead people away, to chain you up and drag you out of the city naked. You can see this depicted in the British Museum in Assyrian art. And if our timing is right, Manasseh would have been in his 60s at this point. There he is as an old man shown no honor, no dignity. He's humbled to the dust. Why? Because of his sin. It's a reminder of what Jesus says in Luke 14, 11. Who, he, he who exalts himself will be humbled. And yet it's remarkable, after some 40 to 50 years of public, bold face and mounting rebellion, that even in this moment, the Lord doesn't cast Manasseh off. The Lord could have just killed Manasseh. He killed Ananias and Sapphira. We just read about that in Acts chapter 5. He killed Hophni and Phinehas. He killed Nadab and Abihu. He killed us for reaching out to touch the ark. He could have just struck the man dead, but he didn't. And what else did he do? The Lord was willing to listen to this man pray. Do you see that? Verse 12. And when he, Manasseh, was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God. I really want you to note that language. Yahweh, Lord, all caps, his God. God. Manasseh has never acted like he's a man in covenant with God. A man who could call God his. But when he's humbled to the dust, he remembers that he's a child of the covenant. And that God gave himself to his people and to their children. Thus he beseeches Yahweh his God and humbles himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now one more time, now in a third consecutive passage, the chronicler has spoken to us about prayer. And every time, it's prayer tied to humility, praying to a prayer, hearing, and answering God. Previously, Manasseh sought to rule himself. All his pagan idolatry was an assertion of his own control. But when he's laid low so dramatically, when he's shown he has no control, he is weak, and perhaps he's on the cusp of death, he then acknowledges that the God of his fathers is God. And Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that will be entreated by flawed men, the God who will lavish grace on those who seek Him, and even listen to a man with this catalog of sin, the Lord bends down His ear to listen. Do you see verse 13? He prayed to Him, to Yahweh, and God was moved by His entreaty and heard His plea. What a God! Do you see, dear friends, the depth of mercy and compassion in our God? Do you see how He is indeed slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that He's ready to listen to one who would call upon His name? Our God is not a God who wishes people simply to die for their sin. He wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth. He didn't afflict Manasseh capriciously. He afflicted him that Manasseh might turn from sin. And if there is anyone that we would think is beyond hope, that is past the pale, that is simply unredeemable, it's this guy. He spurned the example of His godly Father. He desecrated the temple of the living God. He made the holy city of Jerusalem a den for pagan idols. 
And then when God spoke to him, not only did he not listen, he was openly hostile. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, in the midst of articulating the sufferings of the faithful people in the Old Testament, there's a, a statement that some by faith who live by faith were sawn in two. Now, no Old Testament passage directly mentions this. But there's a tradition stemming from ancient times that this was the fate of Isaiah the prophet. In a handful of books from the Jewish writers, as they chronicle ancient traditions and stories, it's recorded that Isaiah the prophet was sawn into by Manasseh. Patristic writers like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Hippolytus, and Jerome also mention this event. Now think of that. Manasseh, the king, so wicked that he had perhaps the greatest prophet besides Moses and Elijah, certainly the prophet that speaks the most of the coming King Jesus Christ, he had that prophet of hope captured and cut in half with a wooden saw. But even from this cauldron of corruption, there's a way back if you humble yourself. No sinner is too far gone that he can't grieve his sin turn to the Lord and cry out for mercy. You and me, we would never forgive a guy like Manasseh. But the Lord's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He hears the prayers of sinners. He will always hear the one who humbles himself, who is contrite, and who comes seeking mercy from God. Doesn't this motivate you to pray? I know some of you tonight are burdened deeply by family members who don't know Christ. What is your hope? Your hope is in a God of great mercy like this. That if that wicked sinner will but turn to the Lord, that God will have compassion and we, He will abundantly pardon. It's possible to live 60 years of blatant rebellion and God still rescue your soul. There's even a story about a man named Luke Short. I don't know if some of you have heard this story. He was 104 when he died. He remembered a sermon when he was a teenager of John Flavel preaching Christ. And he's converted at 103 years old. The Lord always can bring His Word to bear upon a soul. Don't forget that. Believe upon the power of God. You know, one of the greatest tactics of the devil in enticing us all to unbelief is to make us think that God is just spiteful and that He doesn't really love sinners. He's uncaring. But don't you see how this text squashes the devil, devil's caricature? Listen to the language of verse 13 again. God was moved by His entreaty. God was stirred to compassion. When you see Jesus in the Gospels, stirred by the compassion of the leper, stirred by the widow of Nain who had lost her only son, stirred as He looked upon the masses like sheep without a shepherd. When you see Jesus ready to teach, ready to heal, ready to receive, you and I need to understand this is what our Father is like. 
Jesus came to reveal our Father. John 1.18, Jesus is the exegesis, the explanation of the Father. He makes the Father known. He's showing you what our Father is like. Or as one modern Scottish theologian, Donald MacLeod put it, there is no unchristlikeness in the Father. The Father and Son are united in beautiful character, full of compassion. Oh, that we would believe our Father's heart is this large that He's ready to hear from us no matter how messed up our lives have been. He will cleanse sinners who seek Him. And in this text, how can Manasseh know that he's heard and God cares? Well, we close with this, verse 13. Upon hearing his prayer, the Lord brought Manasseh again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Unbelievably, Manasseh is restored to the throne in Jerusalem. Now, we don't get the backstory. How did he get out of prison? <laughs> How'd they let him go? What happened? I don't know, but he's restored. And then we get a declaration in closing this section. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. This is not saying Manasseh's previous prayer was, Lord, if you really exist, prove yourself to me. No, this is Manasseh saying in thanksgiving, I know that you are God. Brethren, is this our confession? You might not have Manasseh's catalog of sin, but you got a catalog of sin. And the Lord has saved you by the blood of Jesus from all of that filth and given you life eternal. And can you stand tonight and say, I know that the Lord is God. May that cause us to live to His honor and glory. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank You for rescuing us from sin. We thank You that there's hope for the sinner to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Lord, we know as Paul tells us, mercy was shown to the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners, that you might reveal the, the depth of your mercy to forgive any who would call upon you. Lord, may it motivate us to plead with you for the salvation of others. May it stir our hearts to share the gospel that a word may awaken the dead. But Father, we, we thank you that your heart is full of compassion. And Lord, we pray that that compassion would touch us and we would live to your honor in view of the kind of God you are. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.